be reading from Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we pray that God, that we would all have ears to hear the word of God. To the angel of the church, oh, or should you, yeah, please rise. Please rise for reading. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did, you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice, practices of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Verse 8, to the, church of, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, he, or he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him, let him who overcomes, to, or to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I, will, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the ch churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. 
Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. I'm going to move this microphone over here. And then I'll move it over here. And then I'll move it this way. Where do you want to end up? Uh, just here, yeah. Or just not in front of the screen. That sounds perfect. Well, one more thing. We're, we're, we're half hour, so there shouldn't be too much more. Okay, so let's have a pool. Everyone put in $5. And you say what's going to happen wrong next, okay? Yeah. Um, whose opinion matters to you and why? When I was at junior high age or so, um, I had a dorky, it's okay, it's okay, Ed. Just forget it. <laughs> who, who picked projector? Who picked projector? <laughs> oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll tell a joke in the meantime. Oh, Garrett, you don't get to hear my joke. When I was junior high age, I had a dorky little homemade toque with a pom-pom on top. And I hated wearing it because it was, well, dorky. And uh, I also hated wearing it because it made my hair messy. And uh, I know, <laughs> I know. The reason it mattered to me is that I thought it mattered to them. Now, I didn't stop to think of who them was. They were the, in the final student population. Um, but for some reason, I decided that their opinion mattered. It was an imagined opinion on something that didn't matter, but I valued it Nonetheless, the opinion of some matters to some of us. There are those in my world whose praise and criticisms carry a lot more weight than that of others. If my next door neighbor pointing out all my um, failings as a husband, do you think that it, I will take that opinion more seriously that, than that of Kara? No. Um, speaking here, if someone does or does not think that I'm a good pastor or not, whose opinion matters? Somebody who's just here on Sundays or somebody who, who works with me in leadership and sees what I do? Well, 
the one who works me in leadership, the one staff, the one who sees what I do. So. Sometimes opinions matter to a greater or lesser degree than, than others. Um, I heard somebody say in church, don't count your critics, weigh them. Because some people's opinions weigh more to us than others' opinions. Um, I heard this great line concerning North American culture. We spend money we don't have to buy things we don't want in order to impress people we don't like. Because their opinion matters to us. So whose opinion of the church matters? Those who attend? Maybe. Other churches? Maybe, if they judge us based on our love for God and love for people. The world? Maybe. We want to have a good name for the right reasons. But isn't it Jesus whose opinion counts the most? And isn't it Jesus whose opinion counts at the end of the day um, more than anyone? It's Jesus' opinion that counts above all. If the, world, if the world and other churches think we're the church all others should be like, but Jesus thinks we're off track, then we're off track. If Jesus thinks we're on track and everyone else thinks we don't matter or are doing things poorly, well, then we're on track. So when it comes to Thornhill Baptist Church, isn't it Jesus whose opinion matters? Not because we're supposed to be like Jesus, imitate him, but as his heart's heart gets formed in us, his values flow out of us into our lives. So in our series on Revelation, uh, before his attention to evil in the world, Jesus first has things to say to the seven churches and to the church. John has vision of the glorified Jesus that knocks him out with his glory, but Jesus wakes him up, so to speak, because John needs to take some divine dictation and send seven letters to the churches in Asia. Sound okay? All right. So we're going to consider three of those churches today and four next week. And in the introductory message to this whole series, I promise no maps. But I just want to show you a couple of things. The island of Patmos, where John was, is a small island just off the coast of Asia Minor, today Turkey. And the seven cities are just inland, um, just off the coast, uh, in the, inside the coast of um, Asia Minor, Turkey. So it's spread very close together. John very likely wrote Revelation around A.D. 95. The Roman Empire was named Domitian, and he was really the first to begin persecuting Christians outside of Rome. So things were heating up for the Christians in these cities. Already there was at least one martyr named Antipas, which we read about. And for the first time, 
Christians needed to fear for their lives because they were Christians. So what kind of encouragement do they need? They need to hear that the risen Christ will triumph over all the forces of evil. And that's what revelation is about. No matter who appears to be winning in the moment, the victor is, must be, Jesus Christ. In the meantime, there are some things that he needs to remind the churches of while they live in these dangerous times. And of course, like all things in the Bible, uh, they're also recorded for our encouragement and instruction. So God continues to speak through his word to us. But it, it only speaks to the extent that we understand what it was saying to those who first received it. So let's look at what it meant to those who received it. Um, a couple of things before we jump into chapter 2. Each letter, first, first of all, is addressed to the angel of the church. And I won't pretend to know what angel means in this context, but I'm in good company because no one knows what it means. Did each church have a guardian angel? There's no hint in scripture that that was so, and if it was so, why address a letter to the angel? The letters, the letters surely had to do with the church itself. So, and secondly, each of the seven letters follows the same seven-part format. A greeting okay, and, uh, sent to the angel in the church of. Uh, a title of Christ, in every case but one, taken from chapter one. Praise for what is good. This begins with, I know that, etc. Um, but interestingly, Laodicea doesn't receive any praise. Okay? Criticism for what is not good. Again, there are exceptions. Smyrna and Philadelphia receive no criticism. Some form of warning. If you don't, I will. Um, an exhortation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And a promise to the one who conquers or is victorious or who overcomes. So all the letters follow this basic format. And it's not hard to see how these letters, written 1900 years ago, speak to the church in our day as well. Satan and his demons have always had a kind of three-pronged attack against the church. If one works, then if one doesn't work, then you try one or the other too. Um, persecution from outside the church, false teaching, such as is found in Central or South America, um, Cath Catholic church and voodoo and that kind of thing, and sub-Christian ethics or sin or laziness. People believe, but they also do this on the side. Um, so, those are the three-pronged attacks. Now, all, of, all three of these show up in these churches, the seven churches, as well. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. And as we walk through these seven churches, three today, four next week, 
we'll get a sense of what Jesus looks for in a healthy church, what Jesus expects to see in his church then and now. So the first church, Ephesus. Ephesus was a great city. Paul had spent the better part of three years there in Acts 19. And from there, the gospel had gone out to the whole province of Asia. But when Paul passed through Ephesus for the last time, he warned them that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And later, he wrote to Timothy, the elder of Ephesus, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, the deposit of the gospel, of the word of God. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So they took these warnings from Paul very seriously. Revelation 2, verse 2. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The church did guard themselves against false teaching. They could have authored a book called What Christians Believe and had it endorsed by Jesus himself. And there's more. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. And they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I, Jesus, also hate. Um, no one knows who Nicolaitans were. But they're again condemned in chapter 2, verse 15, for their teachings. So again, the Ephesians were good at guarding against false teachings. So they're busy. There's something at church every night of the week. They're doing everything a church should be doing, right? But there's a problem, and it's a big problem. So big that Jesus is thinking of removing their lampstand, i.e. gaining the church out of there, suppressing it. What's the problem? They have abandoned or forsaken the love they had at first. Doing, yes, all kinds of stuff. But being, they forgot about it. Now, is this love for Christ or love for each other? Well, both. Love for Christ is shown to each other. Love is a defining characteristic of the church. This is how all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. People came to Ephesus and the church there in droves. They got plugged into ministry. They taught Sunday school. They sang on the praise team or in the choir. They led small groups. But they weren't loved because ultimately, the church didn't love Christ. They spoke truth, but without love. 
They were nice, civil, but not loving. It was all about the church, not about the kingdom of God. They had all these things going for them, and Jesus praises them for it, praises them. But praise does not mean that sin is ignored. Jeremiah 2, verse 2, God laments over Israel. I remember the devotion of your youth. This is Jesus' lament to Ephesus. Suppose I'm a good father. Got this great picture up here. Isn't that awesome? Suppose I do laundry and clean. Give my paycheck over the car. Cook and do child care. Pick up my socks. Leave the seat down. That's what good husbands and fathers do. Suppose I spend uh, one hour a day with each of my children. That's what good fathers do. But if I did everything correctly, what would our marriage be? It would be cold. What is needed? Love. If I didn't have love for my family, would have a house, but not a home. Church is the same. And unless the love of Christ fills us and spills over to one another, we have a church building, but we're not the church. Now, it's got to be said, because this is misunderstood by some, not everyone in the church needs to expand your circle of best friends. Don't, you're not best friends with everybody. But the love of Christ should spill out of our hearts because the love of Christ has changed our hearts. So whether it's in a passing word in the foyer or you develop a friendship for life and anything in between, love. Even just a simple word. The person who you're speaking to should know that you love them. Jesus desires to see and expects to see love. I want to take three or four minutes. Feedback to me about this thing of love. Um, shortly after I came to church, there was a membership meeting, and uh, two people stood up in the church and said, I feel like I'm disconnected. And these two people were involved up here in the life of the church, but they felt like they weren't loved. So tell me about it. How is our church at loving each other? Service, service. Welcoming. Are we, do we do that? Okay, so we welcome people. Do we do it with love? I hope so, yeah. 
I want to ask how many people here are involved in the church but do not feel loved, but I won't. But think about it. Think about it. What else? There it is. You are, actually. And I'm loving you with the love of Christ. Do we do that? Do we do that? Sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we we do we do some things well. We don't do it perfectly. We never will, but we do some things well, and that's that's good. That's good. But we need to. We need to let Jesus' love overflow out of us more than I think, and I talk to me too, more than we're conscious of. So as we think on Christ, as we know Christ better, it will overflow in love for us. So Jesus wants to see love in the church. He also expects to see faithfulness. The second letter is to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was a city known for its worship of the emperor, Roman emperor. As early as 195 BC, they had been uh, built a goddess, a temple for the goddess of Rome. And in this city, a fledging church seeks to follow Jesus, but it's not easy. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. And maybe confiscation of property was an issue for them. The fact that Christianity, Christianity was not a legal religion made oppression easy. Hebrews 10 verse 34 says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that your, yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Maybe that was a Smyrnian's mindset. For Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you're really rich. Indeed. He who has Jesus, but not, he who has, that, he who has have everything, but does not have Jesus, has nothing. He who has Jesus, but nothing else, has everything. So they were rich. They have been slandered by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, the opponents of the church in the New Testament were the Jews. These are Jews by race who met in the synagogue to worship, but they weren't real Jews, not Jews inwardly. Paul said, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical, but Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And this is, by the way, the reason that the church is the new Israel, and the promises to Israel in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the New Testament church. Okay, chapter 4 of Romans. The purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Philippians 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and who glory in Christ Jesus. And passages like that. 
So these other Jews are not Jews, God's chosen people at all. We are. We are. But Jesus also says to the church, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, 10 days, that's not so bad, is it? At least we can see through to the end. But Jesus says that some of you will pay the absolute cost. Be faithful unto death. That's what faithfulness is. Faithfulness despite whatever the circumstances are. But Jesus holds the key of death and Hades. His are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So for those who are faithful unto death, he is able to give you the crown of life. Tested, but faithful. Would we be faithful even unto death? Maybe. I hope so. You never know to the moment because it's all by grace. Hard to tell what our response would be. Christians are being tested with poverty, prison, and even unto death all around the world. Some stand, some fall. But in the eyes of the one whose opinion matters, faithfulness unto death results in the crown of life. What about faithfulness in other areas? Jesus told a parable of the sower who sowed seeds onto four different kinds of ground. The seed stood for the word of God, and the different kinds of ground stood for the different kinds of heart that received the seed. The first heart, the seed didn't take at all. The last heart responded to the word and bore much fruit, 30, 60, 100 times. Well, what about the two in between? One also received the word with much joy. Even raised their hands when they sang in church. But when the tough times came, they ditched their faith. They weren't deep enough. And the remaining heart also received the word of God. But their life was crowded with all kinds of other things. And that stuff choked out the gospel. They didn't have time for it amid all the other concerns of their life. They were unfaithful. So are you, are we as a church, faithful? Jesus wants to see faithfulness in the church. And then truth. The church in Pergamum had the opposite problem of that of the church in Ephesus. Pergamum had an important library. It was an administrative center for the whole area. And Jesus introduces himself as the one who has a sharp two-edged sword, the word of God. Okay? The word of God is the locus of truth, not in a library, not locked in the file marked truth, subsection 8, paragraph 4. God's word is truth. And Pergamum, more than even Smyrna, 
was a stronger center even than uh, for worship of the Caesar. And then more. Behind this hill of the city, it was covered with pagan temples. So it truly was where Satan's throne is. And they too had experienced persecution, but had proved faithful. You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwelt. Again, we don't know who Antipas was, but that's not the point. The point is that there had already been one martyr, but the church held fast. The heart was there. They loved Jesus to the point of death. But they were not as concerned with truth. Verse 14. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to be a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, you can read the story of Balak and Balaam in Numbers 22 to 24. But Balaam spoke for God a blessing on Israel. But in the next chapter, Numbers 25, the Israelites are worshiping idols, and the Israelite man takes a Midianite wife into his tent in full view of the Israelites, and so when God calls the people to take revenge on the Midianites, among the dead is Balaam. This is significant. Balaam spoke the word of God, but also told the king how to entrap the people into sexual sin. And now in Pergamum, you have the same thing. Godly teaching teaching of the gospel, and sexual sin. The heart was there. They loved Jesus. But it, they allowed this false teaching to go on. The opposite of Ephesus. Ephesus carded against false teaching, but it lacked love. Pergamum, they loved God, but let false teaching in. They overlooked false teaching. So use the illustration from earlier. Say, I love my wife, even to the point of death. It was, if it was necessary, I'd gladly give up my life for hers. But it never showed it when I did. I never served her in the home, etc. Then what good is it? We need both truth and action, faith and works, love and and doctrine. Jesus says here, repent. If not, I will come soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, I will come and battle their false teaching with the sword of truth. Now, we might not think that this is much uh, of an error for us, not much of an issue. But in churches, like the rest of culture, sexual ethics are increasingly not shaped by the Bible. Does homosexuality fit in with God's perfect plan and will? Well, despite what the culture tells us, 
No. We're not homophobes. But every time the Bible talks about homosexuality, it does so in negative terms. But I have a nephew who is gay and who loves God. Mixing in false teaching with the truth. If we think sex before marriage is okay, that doesn't matter as long as you love the person, your thoughts on sex are not shaped by the Bible. There are false beliefs mixed in with your faith. Or other false teaching, like the Jesus and complex. I need Jesus and good works to be saved. That is, above all things, a lie from hell. And by the way, people who choose to believe that and people who affirm that homosexuality is not of God are in the same camp. So I just want to be clear. We who sin, whatever the nature of it is, are like homosexuals. So I just... I want to be clear on that. Jesus is important to me. My faith is real. But I don't think that seeking his fame is the most important thing in the world. False teaching. Jesus got very angry with those who makes truth and false teaching. Jesus wants truth in the church. Speaking the truth in love, yes, but speaking the truth in love. Ephesus was all truth, no love. Pergamon was love, but compromised compromise with truth. And so from the church in Ephesus, we see that Christ wants love, a church defined by love. From Smyrna, we see that Christ wants a church that is faithful, even unto death, but is faithful. And from Pergamum, we need to, Jesus wants to be concerned with the truth. And again, by the way, there's one minute to the twelve. Um, that's why we want you to read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Don't count on me once a week to give you a paragraph and talk about it. Read your Bibles because that is how you know what is true and what is not. Read your Bible. So, from Thornhill Baptist Church, Jesus wants to be loved, Jesus wants to see faithfulness, and Jesus wants to see the truth. Three churches. We'll do next four next week. This is part A. Next week is part B. One sermon, not two, but we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Lord, you decide what a church is and what it isn't. And we can be obedient to that or not, but you, you decide. We choose to be a church of love and of faithfulness and of truth. But also we need your help to do it. 
to be that kind of church. Help us always to have our eyes fixed on you and our ears attentive to you so that you can show us things that we need to adjust or change in order to be the church that you call us to. And we don't, we don't want that because if we're the church you call us to, then you'll accept us. We want to be that kind of church because you accept us. And that's what people who are acceptable to you just do. So for the sake of your glory, your fame, please work through us for love and faithfulness and truth. In your name we pray.